Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you that we are gathered here this morning. Father, we are humbled that we are gathered here this morning, that you have brought us here. Father, you have given us life, breath in our lungs. You have given us the ability to speak and to praise your name. Father, we are rejoicing in what you are doing around the world through 40,000 Southern Baptist churches, through over 3,000 missionaries, reaching unreached people groups all around the world in difficult places. And Father, we are humbled that you use us and demonstrate your power and glory through us. So Father, I pray that you will continually remind us of how great you are. We exalt your name. Your word says from the beginning in Genesis through Abraham and even before that, that uh, the nations will proclaim your glory. You will be exalted among the nations. And so, Father, let us rejoice in what you are doing. Lord, we are so thankful that you have called us by your grace out of darkness into light. And we are so thankful that you are penetrating the darkness into difficult, hard-to-reach areas. So, Father, we pray that you will open people's eyes, Muslim people, Buddhist people, Atheist people, Father, all sorts of people groups around the world, I pray that you will open their eyes to see the glory of Christ. Father, we thank you that you are doing a great work, not not only in Central Asia and Southeast Asia and Europe and other parts of the world, but Father, here in our own communities in Alabama. Father, we pray that you will continually proclaim the gospel to those who think they may even know the gospel, those who have been raised even in churches. We pray that you will open their eyes to believe. Lord, we pray for our own church. We pray that we will be used by your namesake to proclaim your glory and wisdom in our community, through our lives, through our lips. Father, I pray that we will be known as a loving people. Father, I firmly believe that it's the love of Christ that changes people's lives. So Lord, I pray that you will use us and demonstrate your glory through us. Father, we ask, I ask this morning as the shepherd of your people, that you will sanctify your people. Make us more like Christ. Humble us. Teach us to repent. Father, crush idols that we cling to. And Lord, I pray that our prayer this morning as we leave, that we will say, Jesus Christ is Lord. And if he is Lord, then it changes everything. And Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 16. We're going to get there eventually. It is actually very fitting. The uh, It's amazing um, how this text fits with this morning. Um, Jenny Lou's testimony and just everything has gone well this morning and coinciding with the message um, and God's sovereign providential plan. And it's amazing that Jenny Lou is here as we are kicking off our Lottie Moon Christmas offering. This church has traditionally um, been a great giver and supporter of the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. Again, it goes, I know sometimes it's hard to see where the offering goes, but we see Jenny Lou here this morning. You know, she is evidence of where the offering is going, um, churches being planted, people being evangelized, disciples being made, leaders being raised up, lots of disaster relief, lots of things that take place that we don't get a chance to see, but uh, we get a chance to go and to give and to pray. And so I encourage you to give to the Lightman Christmas offering. I know your your email inbox is probably being flooded with places that you don't even remember buying one little trinket thing and all of a sudden they've got your email and they know that it is Christmas season and so I'm like, how did these people get my email? I mean, this past week alone, I mean, I feel like my inbox is pretty clean. This past week alone, I'm like, 
where did all this come from? I don't even remember shopping there. But anyway, as you think about shopping, as you think about giving, think about how you will give to this special crucial offering this year. This past week has been a good week for our family. Uh, it's been a busy week, but normally we're the typical family, or I'd say typical, that we put up the Christmas decorations after Thanksgiving. Well, because of other things I saw online and, and friends doing this, I, you know, I just thought I want to get in the Christmas spirit a bit early this this year. So we got down uh, with the kids' help, the Christmas tree uh, yesterday. Uh, not, it's not fully decorated, but we're on our way there, singing Christmas songs, and uh, it was just a good day yesterday as we think about uh, Christmas. But then I have to remind myself we're not to Christmas yet, <laughs> and so this week is Thanksgiving week. And we're going to be traveling to southeast Missouri, being with uh, Sheena's grandparents. And as we think about Thanksgiving, some of my friends, maybe you as well, uh, have been putting online what they're thankful for day by day. Thankful for their children, thankful for their family, thankful for uh, the freedom that we have in America. But as we think about Thanksgiving, um, I encourage you to think about what we are supposed to be most thankful for, and that is that we have hope in Christ. You know, my heart was breaking as Jenny Lou was talking about her friend or her, her uh, roommate and meeting this friend and how she was sitting there smoking that cigarette thinking, I have no hope. But we are people who have hope and we have much to be thankful for. In fact, uh, there's a song by Keith Getty and Stuart Townend called My Heart is Filled with Thankfulness. I know uh, Paul is, knows that song and it's very good. The second verse has become so dear to me. It says, My heart is filled with thankfulness to him who walks beside. We have that mediator and good friend Jesus daily who floods my weaknesses and strengths and causes fear to fly whose every promise is enough for every step I take sustaining me with arms of love and crowning me with grace. A wonderful reminder that we have grace, we know love, and we have hope through our Savior Jesus Christ. So we are going to see uh, some of that grace this morning in Matthew chapter 16. Stand with me, if you will, as we honor the reading and preaching of God's holy word. We are going to begin in verse 13. We are not going to look at the whole chapter this morning, but verses 13 through 20. These are the words of our king. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? They said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Amen. You may be seated. There's so much uh, going on in this chapter. This is a pivotal chapter. In fact, a lot of commentators say this is like the uh, pinnacle of Matthew's gospel. It's from here we see a lot 
going on, a lot taking place as Jesus' identity is becoming more and more apparent as it's being revealed to the disciples and others. But I want to pick up from last week. Again, remember last week we talked about the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, those religious leaders who are always testing, questioning, mocking Jesus. And the same thing happens at the beginning of verse 16, of chapter 16. They are not seeking to worship Jesus, these religious rulers of the day. They're testing. They're questioning Jesus, trying to catch him, trying to say that he's not a true teacher. He's a false teacher. That's what they are claiming, and that's what they are asserting with their questions as they question Jesus and his identity. But we go on, and we're going to pick up in verse 13, as Jesus is continuing his ministry, as he's traveling about, going from city to city, village to village, it says that the text says he's going into the district of Caesarea Philippi. And as he's traveling, Jesus is teaching and preaching to the larger audiences, but then at times, he narrows that teaching, that focus, to his disciples and to the apostles and to the gathering there. And it's as if he expounds to them what he has taught in a larger setting. And so he does that as he continues in his teaching. He asks a general non-confrontational question and he says, well, who do people say that I am? And he knows what the Pharisees and Sadducees think. And he's like, I'm not concerned about what they say. But what does others say? Who do they say that I am? Who do they say the Son of Man is? Jesus, as you know, and as we've taught, he used the Son of Man to refer to himself as to refer to his humanity. That was his favorite um, designation of himself. And he says, what do they say about me? Well, what do they say? How do they respond? They say, well, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And even others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Well, that is a good thing. Those are honoring responses. To be compared to John the Baptist or to Jeremiah or to Elijah or to another prophet is a good thing. But the question we have this morning and the question that Jenny Liu has for those that she ministers to, is Jesus just a prophet? Because Muhammad was a prophet according to Islam, um, but Jesus is the final prophet. He is the last prophet. And so Jesus is pointing out he is not just a prophet. In fact, look at what Daniel chapter 7 says. Daniel 7 says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, this son of man was given dominion and glory and kingdom and peoples and nations and language that should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. So this son of man is not just a man. He's not just a prophet. He is more than that. So Jesus now goes from the general to the non-confrontational question to now the specific as he looks to his disciples and he says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? This you is emphatic, and this this you is plural. It's not just Peter. He's asking the disciples. He's asking all of them. And perhaps we would say, but what about y'all? You know, who do y'all say that I am? This is a soul-penetrating question. This is a question we all must answer in our lifetimes. And so we are asked a lot of questions 
And on a given day, some might ask us, what's the weather tomorrow? Some might ask us, what's your favorite color? Or what do you think about this political leader? But those questions have varying importance, but none of them compare with this question. This question impacts our souls, impacts our lives, impacts eternity. And so here, Jesus says, who do you say that I am? What does Peter say? What does he say in verse 16? You are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. Peter, he says these words, but these words were not even given to him. These words are from above, as Jesus is about to point out. And he says, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. This is a powerful response as he recognizes that he is not only the Son of Man, he is the Son of the living God. What, what Peter is saying is we don't grasp its fullness. He's saying you are the one who has come in the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You are the one who has come in that line. You are the son of the living God. The titles Christ and son of God are synonyms pointing to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah of Israel. He has come to fulfill the Father's plans. We see um, what this um, being articulated and outlined throughout the Gospels. Look at what Luke chapter 1 says as Gabriel talked to Mary. What does Luke 1 say? He will be great. He will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. So he is the Son of the Most High. He is the Son of David. He has come to redeem us. But Peter spoke, as one commentator put it, better than he knew. Peter is the the vessel, but he spoke better than he knew. He spoke of a revelation that was revealed to him. He spoke of this Messiah who has come, the one that Israel was longing for and the one that all of the world will look to. Listen what Tom Schreiner says. Schreiner says, Jesus was God's son in a more amazing way than Peter contemplated. When the centurion acclaimed Jesus as God's son in Matthew 27, his words meant more than Jesus is the Messiah even if he did not fully grasp the dimensions of the words that he uttered. So as Peter speaks, he speaks from heaven. As the father looks upon the son and says, truly this is my son with whom I am well pleased, we say, truly this is the Messiah. He is the son of God. And so how does Peter, or not not Peter, how does Jesus respond? What does Jesus say? Jesus answers him with a blessing. He blesses Peter in verse 17. In verse 17 he says, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter is an encouragement to believers everywhere. He has his moments of weakness. And I often say, I'm like Peter. I like to put my foot in my mouth. And in fact, just a few verses later, um, Jesus has to correct Peter. But we see here that God uses Peter. And he demonstrates his power and glory through Peter and Peter's confession as he says, Jesus is the Christ. And we have to see that God is the one who opens Peter's eyes. He is the one who opens our eyes as well. We have to see that God is the one who opens our eyes. And Jesus blesses Peter, and he says, Blessings to you, Simon, son of Jonah. The son of man blessing a son of man. Jesus comments on the glorious words that comes from Peter's mouth as glory from heaven above. 
What I want us to see from verse 17 is that the glory is God's. The glory belongs to God. The glory does not belong to man. The glory belongs to God because God reveals to man who God is. So we see here in verse 17, the glory is God's. The revelation given to Peter did not come from nature. It did not come from his education. did not come from a fortune cookie. This is not something he conjured up. This is glory from God. And so he... Uh, Jesus recognizes this. This is words from His Father. As His Father reigns over all, and now His Father is showing Peter who Jesus is. We must understand through this passage and elsewhere, saving faith is the gift of God. Wherever it is, we must recognize the grace of God. Even in the book of Jonah, one of my favorite verses, Jonah chapter 2, I forget the verse, but it says, salvation comes from the Lord. These words come from the Lord. Faith comes from the Lord. Repentance comes from the Lord. Our obedience comes from the Lord. So the glory belongs to the Lord. So we see here that Jesus blesses Peter and he does three things here in verses 16 and 17 and 18. First, he reminds Peter where he came from. Second, he tells Peter where his faith came from. And third, he now tells Peter how his faith will be used by God and by His church. So He reminds Peter where He came from. He tells Peter where His faith come from. And now He tells Peter how His faith will be used by Christ. And spoiler alert, we are a part of that plan. The church is a part of God's plan. This is an amazing thing. In verse 18, Jesus says these crucial, and yes, controversial words. I tell you, you are Peter, And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Needless to say, there have been a lot of articles, a lot of books, and a lot of things spoken about this verse. A lot of debates even about this verse. Um, And I don't want to get into all those debates, but I do want to give you three interpretations of this verse quickly. First, the one that I held for a very long time and many Protestants hold, is they believe that this verse and that the rock spoken of here in verse 18 points and refers to Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ. Now that's helpful, but not necessarily biblical. And that's helpful in our theology, and Peter's confession is very important, but the Greek words for Petros, for Peter's name, and Petra, for rock, are a play on words that does not specifically point to Peter's confession as the foundation. But again, that's not to minimize the confession. The confession is vital and crucially important, and we'll get to that in just a second. So that's the first view many Protestants hold. Second, the view I'm sure maybe many of you know well, is that Roman Catholics, this is important for us, not just for knowledge, but this is important for us as we apply the gospel to um, those that we meet. Second, Roman Catholics believe this verse, verse 18, defends the fact, in their view, that Peter was the first pope. Catholics go on to take this verse and others to support the idea of papal supremacy, that is, that the popes will rule and run the church. This view may be helpful, again, to Catholics and integral to their system of beliefs, but it's not biblical and has hindered many in their journey to know God. Peter's role 
Again, just like his confession, but Peter, as a man and apostle, his role is significant, but we should not build him up any larger than the Scriptures portray him to be. So that's the first two views. You follow me so far? I thought, oh, good. Heads nod. So, first view, many Protestants believe. Second view, Roman Catholics, many of them believe. So now let me offer a third view. This is not a new view by any stretch of the imagination, but far fewer hold to this view. And that view is that the rock is both Peter and his confession. How can that be? Well, we look at the context and the rest of the New Testament, we see that Jesus is using Peter and the apostles as the foundation of the early church. And we see the confession and the early witness going throughout um, the, the New Testament. Look with me at a few verses in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 and 20. We see, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Then um, in 1 Timothy, well actually we'll turn to Acts 4 first. In Acts 4 we see, they lift their voices together. That's the early church. Oh, there we go. Thanks, Jared. When they were released, they went to their friends, reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. We see the persecution taking place there. In verse 24, it says, They heard it. They lift their voices together to God, say, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of your father David, your servant, said to the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So we see the confession here, and then also in 1 Timothy 3.16, it says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. We can look at other passages like Philippians 2 and elsewhere in 2 Timothy 3 to see the confession of the early church, but also the apostles that are used as the foundation. So, as we look at this verse, Matthew 16, verse 18, Schreiner points out that this is the climax of Matthew's narrative as the disciples are finally understanding his identity and mission. But now let's continue on quickly in verse 19. Jesus is continually blessing Peter and he says to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Again, this goes back to to support that view that Peter is used as a part of the apostles. And he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This verse is key to understanding the roles of the apostles. Those keys are not to use to unlock a vault in an underground museum. But these metaphorical keys allows the key holder to exclude or permit entrance to the kingdom of heaven. So the weight of this statement can't be overemphasized. 
Look with me at this verse. We see that it is a mouthful and powerful. So what on earth and heaven does it mean? It means a lot. But to put simply, Peter and the apostles were given authority. And that authority is passed down to who? The body of Christ. Not to popes, not to councils, but to the body of Christ. We as the church on earth carry out heaven's decisions. The binding and loosing refers to people, not things or rules, but to people. And the keys of the kingdom are now given to us to carry out the plans of God. So the apostles, and for our context, the church today, must focus on these things. We must focus on proclaiming the good news. We must focus on emphasizing repentance. We must focus on urging conversion. And, I think this is part of this verse, practicing church discipline. Something we've talked about before that is important. So as Jesus talks to Peter, he is speaking of the church. In fact, ecclesia, the word for the gathering, the called out ones, is used here in Matthew 16 and in Matthew 18 and no other place in the New Testament. We'll talk more about that importance when we get to Matthew 18. But here, our mission, as Jenny Lou talked about earlier, is to be the church, to be the called out ones, to be the ones who are called out of darkness into light, to follow Christ and to make His name known among the nations. This is how Jesus will build His church. But then we see verse 20. Verse 20 is a bit puzzling because after Jesus gives this glorious exhortation to Peter, this glorious charge to Peter and the apostles, you would think that Peter and the apostles would be like, let's do this, let's go. Where do we need to go next? We're ready for a crusade. But then Jesus says something curious. He strictly, strictly charges the disciples to tell no one that he is the Christ. Well, if that were the end of the story, I'd be alarmed. But we've got 12 more chapters. And so why does he say this? Why does he say, now is not the time for you to go and tell? Well, partly, and this was very helpful in my study this past week, partly because of the political implications. They had an idea of what the Messiah was supposed to be and what he was supposed to do. And Jesus wasn't living for their political ideas and agendas. And so, he was not ready to accept the the title yet. He wasn't, some say, well, maybe Jesus was confused. Maybe he didn't know he was the Messiah. He knew who he was. But he was not ready for that to get out. Because he knew there would be chaos. He knew that there would be expectations as far as a political, religious, Israel uh, Messiah. And so, he is living and ready and ministering according to his timeline. And it was not time yet to reveal his identity fully. But we, as the people of God, have eyes of faith that know the rest of the story. We know the next 12 chapters. We know that He has come. He has come to die. He was born to die. He was born to die on a cross for our sins and to be buried. But He was raised again. So that we might have life. So that we might be rescued. So that we might know redemption. So that we might be a people of hope. 
So we don't have to figure out whether our sins are weighing in the balance, our good deeds and our bad deeds, but rather that we know that there is a Messiah who has come to rescue us and to save us. We have to recognize the fact, it's not a good fact, but it is a fact that Islam is dominating, is advancing at an alarming rate. And I'm not here to alarm you, but as we look at, especially over Europe, they are advancing. But that shouldn't cause us to shirk back and to be afraid and to go into our cellars and pack up. But Islam is advancing through fear and domination. But we know that they do not get the last word of the last day. Because Christianity advances not through fear and domination, but through love and salvation. Salvation that is offered not just for the Muslim imam, not just for the Buddhist monk, but for people everywhere. For every tribe, every tongue, every nation, we know that Jesus is the Christ. We can say with Peter, He is the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. So my question for you this morning is, do you know who Christ is? He's not just a prophet. He is a prophet. He's not just a teacher. He is a teacher. He's not just a priest, but He is prophet, priest, and king. So all those who follow Christ this morning, we say Jesus is Lord. So I pray this morning that you will trust in Christ, that you will submit to Him and say that He is my Messiah. Let us pray.